Ah 
Good morning, everybody. Such a blessing to be here. The songs were just perfect. And I just want to thank you. Whoever picked those songs out, Jonathan, Dean, or whoever, thank you so much. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to the second psalm, Psalm 2. Reading at verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. May God bless his word to us. I was struck with the relevance and up-to-dateness of the Bible, particularly as it's given us in this passage. And our passage for today introduces us to real people, their lives, their hopes, their struggles, their faith, their questions, their search for answers. We are in a world today that is looking for answers, and the answers seem to be very elusive. They cannot be taken very easily. In Psalm 2, the writer asks a number of things going on in the world, things that made him think that made him want to ask questions and to search for the answers. And I'd like to present a very brief outline of this psalm which feels so modern, so contemporary, and so up-to-date. The psalm is divided into three sections. First of all, we have the questions in verse 1. Then we have the answers in verses 2 and nine, two, 2 through 9. And then the application or response in verses 10 to 12. Now, I'd like to look at these three sections as we look at our world, as we look at ourselves. And I'd like for us to consider, first of all, the questions. Verse 1 begins with the word why. 
Why? Why do the heathens rage? Why do the nations rage? Why are the nations in an uproar? Why are we told that the deepest questions in life begin with that three-letter word, why, why, why? Why do the heathen rage? The word rage has the connotation of a raging sea, waves, huge waves, smashing against a ship or smashing against a cliff, some kind of turmoil. And so the question is, why is there so much international conflict in our world? And I believe every thinking Christian should be asking this question. Is there any question in your mind that the nations are in an uproar? Why is there so much trouble? We all know about some kind of uproar in our world today. Well, you mentioned a few. In Iraq, in Iran, in North Korea, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in Zimbabwe, the Gaza Strip, Israel, Lebanon, Chechnya, Cuba, Venezuela, Honduras. You want me to go on? Why? this turmoil in our world? Will peace ever come to the world? Why can't people get along? Why does the world seem to be falling apart? And before the psalmist answers this first question, he asks a second question, perhaps more penetrating, more an in-depth kind of question than the first. Going back to verse 1 again, you might want to notice this. Why do the people plot in vain? And when the Bible talks about vanity, it is not referring to the amount of time we spend in front of a mirror trying to make up for the wrinkles that are there, the white hairs, the thinning hair, the regular use of Botox or something else. When the Bible talks about vanity, it means emptiness, it means confusion, it means futility. Why are people into empty living? And the question is, why are there so many empty lives in our world? Why are there so many wandering people, people that don't know where they're going? Perhaps you've seen that bumper sticker which says it all. Don't follow me, I'm lost too. <laughs> when a person is searching in a fruitless manner, vain or empty manner, this increases the frustration and the search continues in, er in areas that feel bizarre and hopeless. Plotting or devising a vain thing. Let me give you a few things that are being devised and are vain. I refer to the search in horoscopes, which is 100% nonsense. There's the search in sexual experiences of all kinds. There's the search in trial marriages. There's the search in creative divorce. There's the search in wandering here and there. There's the search in drugs and alcohol. And again, I could go on. Empty searches. 
empty plotting in vain. The, world, the psalmist was looking at his world and he saw confusion and turmoil and emptiness and lostness. And he cries out in verse 1, why? Why? Are some of you asking why this morning? Or have you given up asking? Or have you become indifferent or apathetic? Now these are two huge questions. And I don't intend to insult your intelligence by attempting to give simplistic answers from my own personal great store of knowledge, you know. That would hardly be adequate. I would like, however, to direct us to the balance of this psalm and notice carefully how the scripture responds. It's an amazing passage. So let's look at the answers. The psalmist responds to these two why questions in a threefold manner. First of all, he answers it from the point of view of the non-Christian world. And I want to notice what they say. This is the response of the secular world. It is the response of an elitist culture. It's the response that a non-believer would give. Notice verse 2. And first of all, notice this. There is a summit conference. Did you notice that? There's the summit conference in verse 2, where it says the rulers take counsel together. Maybe they met in Italy. There's a summit conference of kings or rulers or trendsetters or talk show hosts or movie stars or psychologists or presidents or dictators. They are the influencers, if that's a word, of our age. Well, what are they doing? First of all, they're against the Lord and against Christ. That's what the word anointed means. In Acts chapter 4, where this psalm is quoted, the word anointed refers directly to the Lord Jesus. So these people at that summit conference are against the Lord Jesus Christ. These people are probably against the Lord because the very word Lord means an authority. It means sovereign. He's the boss. What the name Lord suggests is something that they don't want. It doesn't appeal to people who see themselves doing whatever they please and who see themselves as needing no one. I don't want a Lord over me. We will not have this man reign over us. They are the masters of their own destiny. What's the answer to the why questions of verse 1? The world says, be against the Lord and against Jesus Christ and his message. Don't listen to it. Turn it off. And guess what? Christian programs in this country, for the most part, are banned. Christianity is crit criticized. It is declared foolish unbelievable, and we have these nutty 
fundamentalists who have closed minds. That's what is said. The second thing they decide at the summit conference is they will no longer consider any of the biblical restraints as helpful or valid. Notice verse 3. When the Bible says you shall have no other gods before me, or you shall not commit adultery, the response in verse 3 is that these words are like chains and need to be gotten rid of. The call is to get rid of the fetters, get rid of the chains, get rid of biblical morality, get rid of the commandments of God, get rid of the chains. People want sexual freedom. They want the freedom of choice to do anything. They want no restrictions. That's why there's an uproar. That's why there is vanity. People are trying to live as if God doesn't exist. And they simply, and that simply does not work. Perhaps you remember that the Supreme Court had ruled that Kentucky couldn't post the Ten Commandments in the schools. But what disturbed me more was their reasoning. It said this, quote, lest students looking on these day by day might be moved to obey them. Close quotes. Let's tear apart the fetters is a call to anarchy, which says no to God and no to his words. To say no to God is to fail to understand that the Lord seeks our highest good rather than being a person who wants to take the fun out of life. The answer of the non-Christian world to the why of verse 1 is to get rid of God and to get rid of the principles and standards of the word of God. And to me, that sounds very familiar to what's going on in our world today. The second answer to these why questions comes from God himself. He's seated on his throne. And I want you to notice the perspective from heaven. Notice verse 4. What's God doing up there in heaven? You know, strange thing. He's laughing. Laughing. Now, I want to correct a possible misunderstanding. God never laughs at the pitiful condition of people. He's not entertained by horror movies horrible scenarios. He doesn't laugh at the victims of fire or flood or earthquake. What God laughs at are the ludicrous thoughts and boastings of men. And I think God laughed. Remember the Russian astronauts when they went up into space and they said they looked around all over space and they didn't see God? Therefore, there cannot be any God. And I think God laughs at that kind of Silliness. He laughs. Man has a history 
of proven incompetence in terms of the relationship with others. And yet here is man still trying to manage his affairs without God. Man refuses to acknowledge God as Lord, and God will not bow down to man. He will not. Unfortunately, God does not sit on his throne seething in silence with a red face. He's not a God out of control. God first laughs and then he speaks in righteous anger. And yes, God is angry with man. God is angry with rebellion. God is angry with the horrible history that man has compiled. It is unthinkable that God would not be purely and perfectly angry with men, with sin. If he was not angry, we would reject him as not being a God of justice. So notice what he says in verse 6. There's a contrast here between the kings of verse 2 and the king of verse 6. The kings in verse 2 exalted themselves. The king in verse 6 is exalted by God himself. And there's a big principle here. Self-exalted men are going to be lowered, are going to be abased. The one who humbled himself even to death on a cross will be exalted. And the New Testament identifies this king as the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The third answer to the why questions comes from God's newly installed king. Notice this in verses 7 to 9. And first we want to notice verse 7. Here we have described a unique relationship to the anointed one in verse 2 with God the Father. And I want to emphasize that because the verse describes the closest possible relationship. That is the relationship of a father to a son. So he describes a relationship, first of all, to his king. Then in verses 8 and 9, we are given a prophetic perspective. There will not always be chaos and turmoil and vanity. We're told that the people's rebellion will be put down. God at some point is going to say, enough is enough. I've given you, he says, opportunity after opportunity to change. And at some point, the uproar and the vanity will respond either voluntarily or they will have to submit to the iron scepter. Now, that's a freedom of choice. There are three statements of instruction that give us help in what we should do today. We've heard briefly on both sides. The kings of the earth take counsel together, that group, and then we have God and his king on the other hand. How are you and I going to respond? Verse 10, therefore, you kings, show discernment. 
or be wise. Exactly. In other words, wise up and live. The psalmist who started by asking questions now concludes by giving some instructions. Start thinking seriously about God's role in your life. Take time to consider why Jesus came. Notice that people who live without God are not happy. They are angry people, restless people, lost, empty people. So therefore, you kings, be wise. It is obvious that things are not right in the affairs of men. And the greatest reason is because God and the Lord Jesus are left out. They're neglected. His commandments are largely ignored. Be wise. Be wise. Get with it. Secondly, in verse 11, serve the Lord or worship the Lord. Now, to serve or to worship the Lord implies a radical change from this vain, empty person to change from that posture to serving and worshiping God. From uproar and vanity to worship, that's a kind of upside-down change. If there is going to be a change in the affairs of men, then there must be a change of heart toward the Lord. And the change comes only when men submit to the claims of God in their lives. It comes about when men stop serving and worshiping self and by an act of faith acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And when Jesus is Lord in one's life, the natural response is service and worship. Serve the Lord. Worship the Lord. Bow down to him. Third thing in verse 12. And here's a command. Do homage to the Son. Literally, it reads, kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. This is a rather unusual kind of statement, particularly to the 21st century mind. A kiss is an expression of love, an expression of surrender to the affections of another. It is an act of submission. Can you imagine the people who have rebelled, the people in turmoil, the people who were at the summit conference and who said, I'm going to throw off every shred that has to do with God. Can you imagine this person coming in a pledge of loyalty and submission. That's a pretty radical change. It's the kind that God loves to make in a person's life. And you know, we all have an opportunity to have that change. We all have an opportunity to bow the knees of our heart. Or if you want to bow your literal knees, that's fine too. I'm so glad that I can actually kneel. You know, I have two new knees, 
but I wasn't able to kneel for maybe a couple of years. It was too painful. But I can kneel now. Not for long, but I can kneel. And uh, that's kind of neat. And God says to mankind, submit. Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. God loves us so much. Our response ought to be to him, love in return. Someone has said that the greatest sin of all is to reject the love of God. And the book of Hosea and others in the Bible would seem to bear that teaching out. Do you all know that God loves you? and is looking for you to love him in return. We indicate we love God when we accept what he has done for us. Is there someone here this morning who will indicate that they love God? We indicate we love him when we say thank you. We love him when we are submissive to him and serve him. Worship him. Anyone searching for answers here? The answers are not found in a rebellious attitude toward God. The answers to the deepest questions in life and relationship are found in the last line in Psalm 2. Let me read it to you. Blessed or happy are all they that put their trust in him. That's what it says. You want to be happy in an, other, in an otherwise unhappy world? In a world of confusion and turmoil? Well, notice that last line again. Blessed or happy are all they that put their trust in him. You can do that today. Put your trust in him. And the consequence of our putting our trust in him is an inner joy and contentment and happiness that cannot be taken away notwithstanding the strife and turmoil in this empty and vain world. This ought to be the greatest stimulus package of them all. That we might receive happiness. And this, uh, you know, did we have a big enough a stimulus package or was it not quite enough? You know, believe me. This is, this is Jesus speaking to us. Blessed or happy. Would you like to be blessed and happy as a consequence of your putting your trust in Christ? Do that today. Do that today. It's not trusting, as I said, the stimulus package or any other kind of a package. It's trusting in Christ. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, we thank you for setting before us so very clearly in your word the uh, anxieties and the struggles and the strife of men and how your son, the Lord Jesus, came to help us out of the miry clay and that place which does not satisfy. Lord, we trust you today. We trust you when you say you love us. We trust you when you say you died for us. We trust you when you say that uh, by believing in you, we can have eternal life. We trust you that you have told us that there is a future for every child of God, the ones who trust in you. And so, Father, we say thank you. Bless this congregation of your people here. And if there is someone here, Lord, that uh, needs to bow the knee, to kiss the Son, to do homage to the Son, we pray, Father, that that person or persons will do that this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.